Hello and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Redenbaugh. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or feel free to tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. Now, let's get started and move on to our guest for the day. Dr. Jennifer McComb is an associate professor and neurologist in the University of Alberta, Edmonton, Canada, who specializes in autoimmune neurology. She did her residency in adult neurology at the University of Alberta and has a master's in public health from John Hopkins and did a fellowship in autoimmune neurology at the Mayo Clinic. Jen, you are very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Jen, a lot of your work focuses on complement. And as we know, the complement cascade is one of the most intimidating things for any immunologist to try and remember. Could you maybe give us a quick intro to complement, maybe just a summary of the pathway? Sounds good. I'll do my best. It's uh, intimidating to be speaking to immunologists as a neurologist describing what complement is. So take that with a grain of salt. So essentially how I think of complement and You know, if I'm trying to think of how I might describe it to my patients in clinic when we're trying to talk about how their drugs work, is that it's a a series of proteins that are part of the innate immune system that essentially help us not only kind of activate the immune system and eventually result in destruction of whatever you want destructed, whether it's an invader or an apoptotic cell. And it also serves to regulate itself. So it tries to have a balance. Essentially, there's three different activation pathways that are important. The first is called the classical pathway, which is called that essentially because it was the first that was described. This is the one that involves binding of complement proteins to antibody. So it's the one that requires antibody essentially to be triggered. And then with the binding of the antibody to complement protein, essentially there's a series of kind of cleavages and protein reactions that result in eventually a formation of something called the membrane attack complex. And the membrane attack complex essentially results in destruction of whatever it's trying to destroy. There's two other pathways that have been described, both of which don't involve binding of antibody. The first is called the alternative pathway, and it was called that essentially because it was an alternative to the classical pathway at the time. Um, and essentially what it is is binding of complement proteins directly to whatever it's trying to kill. And then again, through a series of cleavages and enzyme reactions, you get Um, formation of the membrane attack complex again. Then the final pathway is called the lectin pathway, where essentially there's these complement proteins called lectins and phacolins, which bind to carbohydrates, so a little bit different. Um, But again, there's direct binding without antibody, and then ultimately again, leading to formation of the membrane attack complex. As I alluded to, though, there's also kind of a, a balance to that system. So there's regulatory proteins that are also part of the system that help kind of manage some of these reactions so they don't run out of control and attack us or good cells or things in our body that we don't want to be attacked. And also there's parts of, of the complement pathway that serve to activate other parts of the immune system. So, for example, B cells, um, there's a complement proteins that will help with maturation of B cells. So it tries to kind of bring in also other components of the immune system 
um, to not only kind of activate them, but also provide some regulatory activity. It's a great answer to a very complicated question. So Jen, last year, you released a fascinating review article in Neurotherapeutics discussing anti-complement agents for autoimmune neurological disease. One thing that caught my eye to begin with was how we learned about manipulating the complement pathway from snake venom. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, that's a little kind of just an interesting historical tidbit. Essentially, kind of way back as far as 1902, they discovered that snake venom inhibited um, through a series of experiments. They've subsequently discovered that it inhibits um, the complement pathway. And it's interesting because if you then look at the history of it, um, people have tried to use snake venom historically um, to treat many different things from cancers to different types of autoimmune conditions. I get to hear it about a lot because I see a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis. And so patients with multiple sclerosis who are desperate for kind of something to treat their their disease um, will try snake venom. We've determined, unfortunately, though, that the action of it is very short-lived because essentially our own immune system forms antibodies against it. And so, you know, the the control of the complement system through snake venom is, is not something that persists. But it's interesting from a historical perspective, at least. Okay, that is an amazing historical tidbit. So autoimmune neurological diseases are a very wide and obviously varied group of diseases, including anything really from the neuromuscular junction to the cerebral cortex. Which diseases have been shown to involve the complement pathway? Yeah, so um, that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned kind of neuromuscular junction, but even kind of as far back as the muscle. So when we think about kind of the approach to autoimmune neurologic diseases, it's unique in a way for us because in neurology, typically, like historically, we kind of focus on a a part of the neurologic system, right? We have muscle doctors and we have, you know, central nervous system doctors, but you're right in that uh, autoimmune neurologic disease kind of affects the whole gamut of the the nervous system. But similarly, we've been able to discover autoimmune neurologic diseases that are complement mediated through the gamut. So kind of muscle diseases like dermatomyositis have been demonstrated and also immune-mediated uh, necrotizing myopathy. We, of course, have uh, myasthenia gravis, which is one of the kind of prototypical diseases, and then more central nervous system diseases like neuromyelitis optica. There's also some antibody-mediated nerve diseases like uh, anti-GM1-related uh, multifocal motor neuropathy. So, you know, I imagine over time we're going to discover kind of diseases at every level that are complement-mediated. Interestingly, kind of if you look at them as a group, very destructive kind of diseases, as you can imagine. So, I mean, neuromyelitis optica being the one I'm probably most comfortable with being more of a central nervous system doctor myself. You know, it's it's an interesting disease in that its pathology and the disability that patients accrue is in direct relation to the attacks that they have. And that's because, you know, with formation of the membrane attack complex, there's so much of a destructive process that's happening and of course, with the central nervous system, we unfortunately can't get regeneration of cells. Um, and so that destruction leads to disability as opposed to, you know, comparing it to diseases like MS, where there's other things going on in the background. Um, and it's not all the attacks that result in the disability, but kind of an interesting feature of these diseases. And so I'm sure we'll discover more over time. But yes, those are the ones that we can be certain of now. So one of the best-known anti-complement monoclonal antibodies is, of course, eculizumab, an anti-C5 antibody. Can you talk to us a bit about what you might use it for and its mechanism of action? Mm-hmm. So yeah, as you, you yourself mentioned, essentially it's an anti 
C5, and so you don't get cleavage of C5 into C5A and C5B. Uh, typically, C5B is one of the proteins that then kind of combines with a bunch of other complement proteins to form the membrane attack complex. And then C5A will go on to have other inflammatory activities like activating neutrophils and these sorts of things. So essentially, what you're doing is you're stopping formation of the membrane attack complex um, by binding and inhibiting this. Um, and so it works. We know through trial evidence that it works for uh, neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder or NMLSD. It works for acetylcholine receptor antibody myasthenia gravis. Again, through clinical trials, we've been able to demonstrate this. And then its complement treatments are being used kind of in, in other diseases kind of uh, for acute therapies potentially. So for example, in Guillain-Barré syndrome, there's some acute therapeutic approaches that people have trialed in small trials. Uh, dermatomyositis has some small trials, um, but none of the big trials that we have, like for myasthenia and uh, NMLSD. So um, still remains to be seen from an evidence perspective. You've touched obviously very, very well on echolizumab there, but are there other key component inhibitors that are used currently and are approved? And maybe what diseases might we use them for? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, the kind of longer acting version of echolizumab is ravilizumab. And actually, the trial for NMLSD was just published, I think, in the last week. So essentially, through kind of this engineering, we've been able to make this last longer so that you can treat patients less frequently because uh, one of the downsides to Aculizumab is the fact that it's a monthly IV therapy, but Rivalizumab has been engineered so that it lasts longer, essentially, and you only have to treat patients every two months. Um, it can be used in myasthenia gravis, of course, as well. But in terms of other approved therapies right now, really everything else is still investigational. Um, so nothing else that's currently being used, unless you consider IVIG, which uh, might probably does have some action on the complement system, um, which is an approved therapy for multiple different diseases. But I think um, when you talk about IVIG, its mechanism of action is so messy that um, you can't just say it's only a complement therapy. So as with everything, anti-complement agents come with their fair share of side effects. Jen, you're on an international panel that's putting together consensus guidelines for the use of complement inhibition in neurological diseases and how best to mitigate risk. Can you talk to us about the main side effects and how to reduce them? Yeah, so the side effect that we worry about the most is infection, essentially. Um, So it increases your risk of infection, particularly to encapsulated bacteria. And the one that we're all most concerned about is Neisseria meningitidis. And so um, in the most recent rivalizumab trial um, in NMOSD, unfortunately, there were two of the patients who developed meningitis. And thankfully, neither one of them died from the meningitis. But meningitis is a very scary side effect if we're listing that side effect to patients. And, And very scary for neurologists. So neurologists tend to be very risk averse. And so our goal was that these treatments have been shown to be extremely effective in these diseases, and these can be very devastating diseases. So how do we make our other neurology colleagues more comfortable with their use? And so ways of mitigating the risk of Neisseria meningitis particularly, and meningitis in particular, through vaccinations, potentially use of prophylactic antibiotics, through um, other means of you know, treating kind of close family members potentially, or you know, masking or other types of social means of potentially preventing infection or mitigating risk. 
Um, so trying to come up with a series of consensus guidelines, because unfortunately, there's not clarity around this and there's not a ton of evidence about what to do, even in the patients that are reported to have meningitis as a, as a complication of this. Unfortunately, many of them have done all the right things. They've been vaccinated. Sometimes they're even on prophylactic antibiotics. And it's because we're determining that there's you know, different serotypes potentially or you know whether or not they've caught a, a a strain that is uh, resistant to the antibiotics that they're prophylaxing with or is not a strain that we currently vaccinate for. So, you know, how do we mitigate all this risk knowing that these are potentially extremely effective therapies, but that have these risks that are quite scary for both clinicians and patients? The risks are always so scary when you're balancing up whether or not to give a drug. I suppose the other thing we have to talk about when we're talking about whether or not to give a drug is cost. Monoclonal antibodies are never the cheap option. So how do the costs of treatment with these balance out, say, against the cost of simply treating an attack? I mean, are they worth it? And maybe you could comment a little on how you would treat just an attack alone. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's something we really struggle with in, in central nervous system autoimmune diseases in particular, because as I alluded to, there isn't the the possibility of recovery in the same way that we might have with other kinds of autoimmune diseases. Once you destroy that nerve cell, it is gone forever. And particularly when you're talking about a population of patients of whom many of them are very young, if you think about the cost of a disease that can result in a, in a prolonged disability and a person who would otherwise, you know, if we could have prevented that, um, not had to to face that. So it's always difficult with this kind of cost um, thing because we aren't great at treating things acutely. So acutely, currently for these diseases, we would use a combination of high-dose steroids um, together with things like plasma exchange or IVIG typically. But we're generally not able to completely eliminate the inflammatory or immune reaction that's occurring. And like I alluded to before, Patients with NMOSD, for example, accrue disability through relapses. So if we can prevent a relapse altogether, ultimately, that's the best way to go around this. Because even in patients that you identify early and you treat aggressively, often they can have very devastating disability that's remaining. And so I don't think it's an option personally to just um, treat when they get sick, because that's not something that's really a viable option and, and would potentially result in significant disability. I think the other important thing when you're thinking about cost is um, prevalence of the disease, right? If we were considering eculizumab for multiple sclerosis, I think it would be a very different story because one, there's other good therapies and two, that's a much, much more common disease. So the idea from a, a global perspective of putting all of your patients on these expensive medications, that's difficult. I mean, I, I have the luxury of working in a public healthcare system where I can provide medications kind of quote unquote free of charge to my patients for the most part or with um, kind of public insurance. But, uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, if we're talking about a disease like NMLSD, for example, which is a rare disease with devastating consequences, I guess I feel a little bit better about the idea of taking on the cost of a, a very expensive medications. Because as you said, even though monoclonal antibodies in general are expensive, things like eculizumab and rivalizumab are particularly expensive. But it will be great when the cost of these things comes down to make it more accessible from a global perspective, because that's something that's not there. Uh, we might be able to offer it in certain countries or in certain regions. But from a global perspective, it's really not something that's very easily offered. So I think that's an important consideration as well. 
So these are important treatment options. What other complement agents are in trials and in development? What parts of the complement system can we target? Yeah, so, um, you know, eculizumab and rabalizumab, we call them terminal complement inhibitors because essentially they work kind of late in the pathway. Um, so they're, they're inhibiting C5, which, you know, very late in the pathway, of course, results in the cleavage to C5A and B, like I said before, going directly into the membrane attack complex when it comes to C5B. We can try to target, though, elements of the complement system, which are kind of sooner in the system or earlier in the system. And so, for example, there's a medication called Syrins, and I'm not totally sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it works at kind of very early levels. So C1 kind of C1 esterase inhibitor. And so um, C1Q is part of the classical pathway that binds to kind of the antibody and ultimately results in um, kind of earlier steps of the pathway. And so there's targeting something kind of really early, and then there's kind of the midway through, so the kind of things that target more C3. Um, so, you know, different steps along the pathway could potentially be targeted. The question will be, though, about risk, because, you know, from a just a logical perspective, to me, it seems like if you target pathways earlier, that potentially there's a, a greater amount of risk because you're you're starting it kind of earlier in the system. So, you know, it, it'll be difficult to say um, whether or not that will be possible from a risk perspective and then also from an efficacy perspective. The syringe medication, for example, has been found in animal studies to require dosing that's just not possible um, for humans where such significant dosing is required to actually provide inhibition. So uh, it remains to, to be seen if it's going to be possible. It is very exciting, though. Um, now, we're probably straying a little bit outside the lane of a neurologist at the moment, but many people in, in your field, I'm sure, and in the immunological field are very excited about the idea of using complement inhibitors. So, for instance, small molecule C5A receptor antagonists in an acute setting or as steroid sparing agents. Could you talk to us or maybe comment a little on this? And, and would you expect the side effect profile then to maybe be much improved? Yeah, I think that would be an incredible use of this tool because um, if you think about it, we're using complement inhibitors to try to prevent a destructive process. But if you can catch patients when it's just beginning, potentially we could prevent that cell destruction that ultimately occurs. So I think it makes a lot of intuitive sense. And if we are just using it acutely, of course, we're not going to be nearly as worried about kind of long-term infectious side effects because those are something that occur immediately. Um, also, these medications have been demonstrated to uh, have a very rapid onset of action. So it makes a lot of sense, again, mechanistically. And then you are avoiding potentially other kind of therapies like high-dose steroids, which can have some not insignificant side effects, or even PLEX, which can be di very difficult to do even from a, a cost perspective or getting patients to a place where they actually have this technology, or even in, in older patients with you know cardiac disease and stuff like that can be very difficult to do even from a, you know, a metabolic perspective. And so I think it, it that is an exciting potential for the use that needs to be looked at a little bit more carefully. And just finally, Jen, what are the most exciting things you feel are coming down the line in this field? What should we be watching out for? I think actually we've touched on one of the most exciting things. If we could have better acute therapies. That's something we've not really done for a very long time. Um, most of our diseases, we still treat with the exact same thing, steroids, big doses of steroids. And so to actually have alternatives for acute therapies would be um, really neat. I also think we need to do a better job with modes of delivery. 
eculizumab and rivalizumab have the you know the cost associated with the actual drug itself but there's also the human cost of having to go for infusions so frequently and if you're talking about you know young people with families and things like that that's a big cost to their jobs and to their families and things like that and so you know subcutaneous versions of these that can be self-administered um, these sorts of things I think are very exciting too because you know from a the perspective of a clinician who sees patients every day I think those kind of day-to-day considerations become extremely important when you're actually treating someone who's got a a life that they want to live in addition to their disease. Absolutely. Dr. Jennifer McComb from the University of Alberta, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That was really great, wasn't it? I found it really interesting that the patients receiving anti-complement agents who get meningitis are often the ones who have had vaccinations and prophylactic antibiotics. So we really need to do more research into how to actually prevent these infections. I know it is such a shame when they follow the rules and then they still get all the side effects. I'm also fascinated by what Jen was saying about the idea of using complement inhibitors in acute treatments. I find it genuinely hard to believe that in 2023, we still reach for the high dose prednisolone when we want to treat virtually anything. It's effective, but it is a dirty and unrefined drug. And the thought of a safe and effective steroid sparing agent for some diseases involving complement activation, it's really so exciting. Yeah, it would be great to have an alternative for steroids. Right, I suppose that brings this episode to an end. Yep, it's been amazing to learn so much today, not only about what we already know about immunology, but also where the field is potentially going. So guess what? What? This week, I have a joke for you. And (laughs) it's an immunology joke. Do you want to hear it? I really do. Okay, I'm nervous about this one. So... An immunologist and a cardiologist are kidnapped together. The kidnapper threatens to shoot one of them, but will spare the other one who has made the greater contribution to humankind. The cardiologist says, well, I've developed drugs that have saved millions of lives. So the kidnapper turns to the immunologist and says, what have you done? The immunologist pauses and then says, see, the thing is, the immune system is very complicated. And the cardiologist says, oh God, just shoot me now. (laughs) <laughs> that's brilliant we we are like that i must really compliment you on your wonderful joke oh bianca you get worse and worse each week do you know that <laughs> well thank you anyway i will take that listen that's enough from us for today if you want to get in touch with us with questions or comments about the show please email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com that's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us at immunotea. We'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Jennifer McComb, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, our editor, Aidan McKelvey, and to you, the listener. We'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.